2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 16. And we're at a point in this letter where the Apostle Paul is presenting a series of paradoxes, of um, uh, seemingly uh, contradictory things that work together uh, for the... Um, uh, the, the glory of God and the growth of the church should they practice such things. And uh, we'll, we will see what today's is as we read, I trust. Let's read from verse 16, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, Danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. I was going to continue reading um, into the next verses, but instead we're going to be looking at those with the beginning of chapter 12, um, Lord willing. Uh, next time we are in 2 Corinthians. So we'll stop there. We'll ask God's blessing and then um, we'll have the explanation. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would in your mercy and grace be um, uh, gracious uh, and kind to us uh, that we might understand your word. Help us uh, to understand it um, uh, and to understand not only what it's saying intellectually but applicationally. Uh, that we might see its abiding relevance for our lives. And, and, and so honor you, give you praise and honor and glory, um, for indeed you have loved us 
such that you have carried along your servants by the Holy Spirit to deliver these words to us. We ask your blessing upon this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Are you familiar with those words? Don't answer the fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. They're found in Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, chapter 26, verse Four, they communicate timeless wisdom about how we communicate with people who are just being ridiculous. Now, it's been repackaged in various ways for different contexts. We talk about going high when others go low. We talk about taking the high road. We talk about not bringing ourselves to someone else's level. Sometimes uh, we use pictures and we speak about um, not wrestling with pigs. Um, We advise people not to respond to attention-seeking people who say extreme things. You're just giving them what they want. On social media, there's just advice that you should follow, but which a lot of people don't. Don't respond to trolls. You know, the anonymous accounts that have five followers that um, snipe at you with tones of, um, you know, higher wisdom. Don't interact with people who share just offensive and provocative content. Don't respond in kind to the rude work colleague or lash back at the pushy classmate. Not everything requires a response. Not everyone even deserves your thoughts. Sometimes even saying something good and right and true is inadvisable. Thus, another saying, Jesus himself said that, if you're questioning the principle, do not cast pearls before swine. There is a time and there's a place. And there's a right audience and a wrong one. What's less well known, though, is the next verse. Proverbs 26.5 literally says the opposite of verse 4. Answer a fool according to his folly. Did you know that? Had you heard that one before? Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now the question, is the Bible contradicting itself? Some people say that this is evidence that the Bible cannot be trusted because it's contradicting itself literally in one breath. And you can tell that so many different people are involved and uh, are, um, uh, you know, uh, contributing over seasons and time. And, you know, this person had this thought and that person put their thought in and they're saying that that renders the Bible untrustworthy uh, or incredible. That is simply not the case. It is uh, actually... uh, beneath the surface, a frankly irrational argument uh, that does not respect genre, that is the type of book. Proverbs is a collection of wise sayings, okay? And so um, the Bible is not contradicting itself at that point. Uh, If it was, it would do a better job about it, Um, not the very next verse. (laughs) Proverbs is biblical wisdom 
that relates common sense and divinely inspired principles for appropriate application in the varied contexts of life. Sometimes the most effective way you can prove your point is by bringing it down to someone else's level. And ultimately, that's what it means to answer the fool according to his folly. Bringing it down to someone else's level. Don't always do that. But sometimes it's actually right, wise, and good. They want to play a particular game. Two can play at that game. Of course, just make sure that you can indeed play. And that you can play better. Otherwise, you've expended um, you know, your energies on applying a Bible verse probably in the wrong context. Make sure that you have the receipts to produce before you go off making claims. There is, after all, power in the tongue. Misapplied, it can burn everything down. Rightly applied, it can shine a light on the truth, illuminate those who walk in darkness, and warm those who are otherwise left cold. It is this latter principle of answering a fool according to his folly that the Apostle Paul applies in the verses we have just read. By so doing, he illustrates what we might call wise foolishness. Okay, we, we normally don't, we don't put those two together. Wisdom and folly are opposites, aren't they? But wise foolishness is what Paul is engaged in here. It is answering the fool according to his folly, lest the fool be right in his own eyes. There's a couple of things that I want you to see from the text that we just read in 2 Corinthians. First of all, it's very important that we get to grips with the manner of wise foolishness. The manner of wise foolishness. I, I, I think, really, we need to address Paul's strategic use of this form of communication to really get the, the, the full benefit out of this text for our own patterns of communication and argument. Perhaps you're talking with someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, who doesn't accept the authority of Scripture, and, and you're just kind of um, you know, wondering, how should I approach this situation? Is this a answer the fool or don't answer the fool type of arrangement that I, I, I need to pursue here? And I think it's very important that um, we, we know clearly what Paul is doing, how he's doing it, and why he's doing it. Another thing, how to respond to fellow believers that are making erroneous points. Okay, That's really the context, actually. Paul is not talking to non-believers. This is not apologetics. This is not evangelism. This is how he is interacting with brothers and sisters in Christ in the context of a local church. But when is it appropriate to do so? And how is he doing so? We have to dive into the text to see that. Uh, not least because the handful of passages, like this one in Scripture, have been used by some to explain constant communication of this form. And at times to excuse what is in fact bad and abusive behavior that is not above reproach. Are you, are you following me? There are some people who rush to this passage, this exact passage, to excuse their bad behavior and their constant demeanor. It's not a strategically deployed rhetorical device. 
It is how they always are. They're always bitter. They're always angry. They're always sarcastic. They're always acidic in their communication. A pastor I used to listen to occasionally would rush to passages like this when people questioned his questionable pulpit behavior. It comes as little surprise when I hear of what he has said and done when out of the pulpit. This week, a former fellow elder testified to how one, one service they had a baptism service. Now, now I, bear in mind, this is a large church, okay, and they're, they're, they're learning how to do things a bit differently. Uh, they had lots of pastors, and the main pastor was not doing the baptisms, okay? They had people playing music over at the side, and they had streams of people who were being baptized. The pastor was off stage. Yeah, it was, it was that type of church, big church off stage somewhere and guess what they ran out of t-shirts yeah they had customizable t-shirts for the baptism um uh you know big churches big budgets they can uh, they can do that it's kind of cool it's tempting but um uh probably i mean you know if you want one of those friends you're gonna have to pay for it yourself okay they're having their t-shirts but guess what? They ran out of t- Oh, they also had shorts. They ran out of t-shirts and shorts. Now, would you believe it? <sighs> it's not like the people showed up to church naked. They came with clothes, and presumably they had dry clothes as well with them. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. In any case, the pastor discovers, the lead pastor discovers that there are no t-shirts. I don't know. They probably say something like, you know, buried with him in baptism or something. I, who knows? You know, we believe. I've seen different versions. He went to the person who broke the news to him, who was another pastor. He took them by the neck, threw them up against the wall, and said, and the elder communicated that he was cutting out the obscenities and swear words that the lead pastor was using. I'm going to break your neck with my hands. And then he proceeded to say unspeakable demonic things that he was going to do after that to the person. This is a pastor. Still is a pastor. I do get upset about things like that. Because I, I, I take character very seriously. And I take the pastorate very seriously. And that is not like Jesus. People are saying out of genuine faith, I'm buried, I'm dead to sin, and I'm raised to walk in newness of life while the pastor is engaged in narcissistic antics on the other side of the room. Uh, Of course, that man did eventually resign from his church. He ran to avoid church discipline for the culture of abuse that he had created, but he's just continued to do the same things and worse elsewhere. Why do people still listen to trash like that? Because that's what it is. James says, can a, um, a, a, salt, is a salt spring pour forth fresh water? Something along those lines. A dead tree bear good fruit. There was another pastor who created a news site that he used as a platform to spread lies and venom, especially about other Christians he disagreed with. 
His words were more often poisonous than not. His disposition was perpetually angry, and he was constantly aggressive and sarcastic. Constantly. That was his perpetual demeanor. He knew what his audience wanted, and he served it up to them. They continued to feed the monster by giving him the clicks that he wanted. Sometimes, truth be told, he had a point, albeit it was obscured by his anger. But he had enough of a point that he had no trouble rubbing shoulders with some leading personalities in the Reformed evangelical circles of his country. If corrected or even just encouraged to practice more self-control in his self-expression, he would resort to passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 11 as his basis. Occasionally, he seemed to take a step back. Especially, there was the time when the suicide of a teenage boy was linked to a Twitter conversation in which this adult pastor dished dirt about this boy's father. So he took a step back. I remember that because my dad called the man, called the pastor who was doing this, called him and prayed over him. Because we do believe that however far someone has fallen, However sinful or rebellious they have been, there is redemption in Jesus Christ. And sometimes we, we can, in our anger uh, about the abuse of the pastoral office, um, forget uh, the, the healing power in the blood of Christ. I remember that. I didn't fully understand it. But he, he was back. Took a step back. Then he was back again. Multiple times he said he was leaving social media or stepping away from his website. Multiple times he confessed his sinful use of that medium. And multiple times he would only reemerge. He even shut down his website once, only to start a new one with a new name. Unfortunately, it was the same old aggressive and acidic communication, sometimes true, sometimes false, some, uh, often a mixture of the two, making it very difficult for people to discern what exactly was going on. People either thought he was completely true or completely false. Did great damage to many. From my perspective, he was disqualified from ministry a long time ago. But this year, he, he was arrested for driving under the influence, prescription drug addiction came to light and the church removed him. Reports then emerged that he had embezzled more than $10,000 from church funds and was physically abusive to his wife and children, including assault with a weapon and strangulation of a partner or family member. Why do I go through all of that? Maybe someone doesn't like me communicating such stories. I communicate them as a pastor. I'm talking about people who should be on my team, but actually defame the name of Christ and defame the pastoral office, making my job all the more difficult when I'm actually seeking to do what Paul is doing in good faith. In short, if your communication or if mine is constantly like this and going beyond it, which be honest, these guys were, you are more likely to be the type of person Paul is rebuking by getting down to their level than you are to be the Apostle Paul. Keep a watch on your words and how, when, and where you use them. Watch the content you consume 
that stirs up things that Paul says elsewhere you should put away. Bitterness. All bitterness. Put it all away, he says. All anger, all rage, all shouting and slander and malice. Put it away. It's killing you and it's killing the church. It's something also I want you to see that Paul is clearly uncomfortable doing. It is not his normal method of communication. His writing is not normally characterized by snark and sarcasm. He has not built a brand around a brash and abrasive personality. Compare this section with the vast majority of Paul's writing and you will find it is tonally very different to what he says elsewhere. Not in content, but in style. Even when he is upset, indignant, angry, and so forth, as he is in this passage, make no mistake about it, he does not ever resort to using crass language or crudity. He mourns lostness in the world and residual sin in the church. And he responds with a spirit of brokenness, not banter. He repeatedly communicates how silly, how foolish he feels talking this way. While we know he's writing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit at a basic human level, he explicitly acknowledges, read it in verse 17, what I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Have you gotten what he's saying there? Do you understand the message? I am not speaking as the Lord would in this moment. I am speaking as a fool. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, he says in verse 16. Even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I may boast a little. I'm speaking not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, even though he says elsewhere we should boast according to the Spirit, he says, I'm going to boast according to the flesh now because that's what you're used to. Verse 21, he he interjects mid-thought, I am speaking as a fool. Verse 23, mid-thought, I am talking like a madman. He is acknowledging up front really and clearly that This is not a form of communication that he recommends. It is not one that is dignified. It is not one that is even particularly, you know, effective normally. But he's answering a fool according to his folly, lest he be right in his own eyes. Are, are, Are you following so far? While he is hard, he is not haughty. While he is pointed, he is not poisonous. While he speaks this way strategically on this occasion, it is not an um, accurate reflection of his normal manner of communication. He contrasts his manner here when he says, I do not speak as the Lord with. He is drawing a contrast with what we see earlier where he spoke to them and treating them, chapter 10 verse 1, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So this is in contrast to that. He's writing a letter, stream of consciousness. I'm going to write by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Okay, on on one hand. But on the other hand, if that doesn't work, I'm ready to play another game. I'm ready to communicate a bit differently. By so doing, he upholds and embraces the meekness and gentleness of Christ, though. Because he has... self-awareness, and he has some emotional intelligence 
to acknowledge how he is communicating. I'm speaking like a fool. I'm speaking like a madman. Thus, he demonstrates that his strength is under control, which is how some have defined meekness. So even in not being meek, he is being meek. He knows what he's doing, how and why. That's the manner of his wise foolishness. But secondly, see the motive of Paul's wise foolishness. It is very much what the proverb I quoted a moment ago says. Answer the fool according to his folly. Why? Lest he be wise in his own eyes. Paul wants the deconstruction of every demonic stronghold in the church of Corinth with the truth of God's Word. He literally says that just a few verses before that, that he has been given a message that brings down strongholds. And he does that with the proclamation of the Word of God. With the truth of God's Word. He wants the reconstruction of faithful, Christ-centered, cross-shaped gospel preaching in the church at Corinth. He wants the Corinthians to be free from idolatry that presents a different Christ. He wants them to be free from immorality that pollutes the bride of Christ. He wants them to be free as, as the pure temple of the Holy Spirit from the immorality of the culture around them. He wants them to be free from injustice which practices a different social ethic than that of Christ. That's a Ongoing theme that he has carried over from 1 Corinthians into this letter. They are being made stupid by teaching that undermines apostolic authority and witness. And it adds to the good news of Jesus a checklist of do's and don'ts. Of cultural characteristics, of individual expectations, and of personal preferences that are elevated to spiritual levels. He wants them to be free indeed from these things. Verse 19, he says, You gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. And so he appeals to them to accept him as a fool, just for the moment. Since they bear with fools, bear with him as a fool. And he begins to mirror the method and the manner of their communication. Um, uh, if anyone has studied uh, uh, anything about how to, to handle various and sundry people with um, uh, challenging behaviors, especially those with aggressive personalities or um, uh, cluster B personality disorders, then you, you will know that there are times when you are trained to mirror the intensity of the aggressive person's communication. My, my, my brother works in a special needs school as a learning support worker. My sister works in a special needs school as a learning support worker. Different schools, similar context. They are trained to physically restrain at times students who are misbehaving, special needs students who are, are um, um, just out of control. The Apostle Paul is doing something similar here. Saying you bear with fools, so if you bear with fools, I'm going to become one for a moment. I'm going to act a fool. And I don't like it, and it's not pretty, but maybe it will get the job done. 
Verse 19, you bear with fools gladly. Well, they're welcoming people who financially exploit them, who spiritually abuse them, and in some cases physically assault them. Notice that in verse 20. You bear it if someone makes slaves of you. But they can't take a little heat from the Apostle Paul. You bear it if someone devours you. You bear it if someone takes advantage of you. Or puts on airs or strikes you on the face. Though Gentiles, they were giving privileged voice to prejudiced people on the basis of purportedly spirit, uh, superior ethnicity, nationality, and covenant relationship. On top of everything else, these people were showing up saying, we're Hebrews, we're Israelites, we're offspring of Abraham, and that gives us license to treat you however we want. The Apostle Paul is all of those things. And he's tried to treat them with grace and dignity, but they've not respected him. In fact, they've disrespected him and they've undermined him. He sarcastically says, after he references what clearly is, a, is meant to be a, understood literally they, about being struck on the face, he says, oh, we were too weak for that. Because they're accusing him of weakness. But there's someone who's rocked up to the church and is smacking people in the face. And they'll listen to that person. And not the apostle who loves them, who prayed for them, who planted the church through great suffering and endurance. And don't think this is, don't think this is 2,000 years ago. This happens all the time. Just check out the churches where people literally hit people, push people, smash people. And thousands will go to hear someone like that. I showed some of you a video of a man who was very big news um, in um, a, a, a charismatic um, uh, outpouring movement in Florida. It was called the Lakeland Outpouring. This goes back about 10 to 15 years ago. And this guy um, uh, was going around uh, with a sort of a biker persona, okay? Big, big man. Um, he looked more at home at a dive bar than um, um, behind the pulpit, but there he was. And um, he was talking about um, the Holy Spirit just came upon me. I was wondering, where's the pouring? Where, where's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? And the Holy Spirit told me, I've withheld the blessing because you haven't kicked that woman in the face. And he says, there's a woman, a little old lady, he said, on the front row who was, stood there, eyes closed, hands to the heavens. And he said, I, I said, Lord, really? What? You can't be serious. Take, kick that lady in the face with your biker boot. And he did. And you know, he tells, he tells lots of stories about this. The time that he ran up, ran up to some, some guy who was on stage and whacked him across the face so that he fell on the ground and a tooth popped out. And everyone's laughing and all of that and applauding. Thousands of people. There were people traveling from this country to Lakeland, Florida to sit under his ministry, but they wouldn't cross the streets to a gospel preaching church. You bear it when someone strikes you in the face. But when someone loves you with the love of Christ and says, repent of your sins and believe in the gospel, and that's it, you will be saved. 
commit to a local church, live in fellowship with one another, walk in holiness, and love one another as a harmonious body of Christ followers, well, that's, that's not as appealing than a man running up and down, physically assaulting people in the name of the Holy Spirit. These people are a disgrace to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the reputation of His body. And they are all throughout Christian history. I grieve when I see it because it is a departure from God's Word. It is not consistent with it. The Apostle Paul is bewildered that they will trash his name and his reputation while submitting to abusive characters. There is, I just chose one from many. I mean, there's, I've been very clear over many years my uh, issues with the uh, Brazilian cult United Church of the Kingdom of God, which is on Woodgreen High Road. And every time I see streams of people pouring out of that place who do not know the gospel. I've asked them, what is the gospel? And their own pastors will look at me with confusion in their eyes. What is the gospel? This, this, you know, multiple times. And finally, a few weeks ago, I got a man talking around the issue for 10 minutes and he finally said something about Jesus dying for our sins. But people who go there and they'll, 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 they'll either endure or they'll break down and they're out in mass. But it's like pulling teeth sometimes to, to, to get anyone to see the light and to get anyone to have that level of commitment to a faithful gospel preaching church. The Apostle Paul is upset about that in his day. I think I can be about it in, in ours. It's very sad. And it is tragic. People say all the time when I comment on the devotion, positively, of the Jehovah's Witnesses, they actually are out there. They don't care what people believe. They'll knock on doors. They'll stand on the street. They'll do everything. They'll walk up wearing some sort of same style of clothes and same type of walk. and same. They don't care what people say about them, how they look at them or anything. They're out there visibly as Jehovah's Witnesses. And I'll say that as one who completely reviles their blasphemous theology. But then when I comment on that, someone says, oh, but they have a works-based salvation. They're a cult. Why do people who believe in a false gospel act like they believe it more than those who have good news? It doesn't make sense. And the Apostle Paul is upset about that. You bear it when someone makes slaves of you. You bear it when someone devours you. You bear it when someone takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. But you won't bear me when I call you out for your idolatry, immorality, and injustice. While undermining the sincerity, spirituality, and salvation of the Apostle Paul, the people the Corinthians were welcoming were presenting a different Savior. Another Jesus. One who does not really set us free, but imposes upon us rules and regulations that go beyond common sense. Personal discipline, neighbor love, and Christian morality. Things that are in fact presented by these false teachers as a means of salvation or at a minimum, a measure, an extra-biblical measure of spiritual maturity. 
Paul wants the Corinthians to know, as he says in chapter 2 of this very letter, that there is a new glorious way. A way that leads not to death, but to life. A way that is eternal and glorious. It sets us free and it gives us liberty to grow in being like Jesus as we are filled with the love of God in Christ for us and amazed by Him. His motive is with regard first to Himself that He be clear. When He's communicating in this more intense than usual way, He wants to be clear. He wants to make His point. With regard to the Corinthians and to the false teachers particularly, His motive is that they be exposed for the fools that they are. Maybe some of them will come to repentance. For, for, for the Corinthian church itself, he, His motive is that they be free. And with regard to God, His motive is that God get the glory. Are we clear on that? He wants to be clear. He wants false teachers to be exposed. Abusive personalities to be exposed. He wants um, uh, Corinthians to be free. And He wants God to get the glory. And that's why at this point, he says, I've been a fool. Well, he says that later. He says, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, accept me as a fool. I'm going to be a fool for a minute. But in my foolishness, I trust you will see the light of truth. One way or the other, I want you to get this. That's where he's at. Where does he take us now? The final thing I want you to see is the message of wise foolishness. What is he communicating to the church at Corinth? Well, first of all, uh, the message is uh, that he knows who he is. Bear in mind that this is a man who has been mocked for his personal appearance. What if people were making fun of you about your personal appearance and diminishing your... Um, your gospel witness because you look a certain kind of way. That's disgusting. Absolutely has no place in the body of Christ to make comments about anyone's physique or personal appearance. But that's what they were doing to Paul. They were attacking him not only at a physical level, but at a rhetorical level. They said that his pulpit presence was weak. That he wasn't an impressive speaker. That he was not a rhetorical powerhouse. There's better, more impressive people out there to listen to, to read, to pay attention to, to watch, whatever. Just, you know, Paul is a lightweight But he's proclaiming the excellencies of Christ, not his own. It was never about him. It was always about Jesus. Then it stopped the weird false charges or true charges because Paul actually welcomes their comments. Yeah, you're right. I do look kind of funny and frail. Yes, absolutely. I'm not that great of a speaker. But I have a great Savior in Jesus Christ. Paul knows who he is. 
Imagine these guys. You can imagine them. They come into the church at Corinth and they're like, we're Hebrews, we're Israelites, we're offspring of Abraham. We know what we're talking about. There's different characters out there, but um, uh, some of us have had interactions with the, the black Hebrew Israelites. I mentioned that because there was a, um, a personality out there in the um, uh, sort of um, uh, urban world that was communicating uh, through Twitter about where we're Israelites this week. And it was all a bit abusive and anti-Semitic and stuff like that. Um, these, these are extremely abusive people. Uh, have you interacted with them? Maybe some of you. Uh, horribly racist uh, and prejudiced, divisive, poisonous, bitter, and they carry themselves with a certain kind of strength. They will shout you down, they will square up, and they, they, they will verbally assault you, overwhelm you so that you can't get a word out. Seen it played out many times on Wood Green High Road. Oftentimes there'll be a man in some sort of ancient looking garb, and there'll be a crew of side men along him. They'll have their Bibles, sort of like that. Mmm, yes, preach, you know, all of that. And then the guy will be shouting abusive things that are total distortions of God's Word. Here's the thing. Side note. If anyone is engaged in ministry with black Hebrew Israelites, it is a pointless and fruitless task to persuade them that they are not, in fact, descendants of Abraham. I don't even know why you would want to argue about that. Let's just lay that aside. It, it means nothing. So what? Let them dream. They... they and for my, I'm a very gracious guy. I'll give them ground. There's a lot of tribes that went missing. I'll give them the ground. That's fine. It's not a gospel issue. Absolutely not a gospel issue. What is a gospel issue is when you claim I am this, so I am right with God, I'm going to heaven, and the rest of the world will burn. Even if you believe, you will never stand before God. Because you are not the covenant people. Which I have been told. Man came up to me and told me I was an Edomite. Out of the blue. Walks up to me. I'm, I'm just, I'm giving out bread. I wasn't even like, you know, literally preaching the gospel. Man comes up, oh yeah, you Edomite. What? Look at all that red in your beard, bruh. And I was like, um, uh, uh. and? So I have a bit of red in my, in my beard. He's kept going on, all sorts of nasty slurs and things like that. I didn't take it very personally. Um, but his main point was not me. His point was one of the brothers who was alongside me. Why are you as, a, as, a, as an Israelite, he said, spending time with an Edomite? I took him to Scripture where we see that all people are one in Jesus Christ. That's the point. That we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And our, our, our ethnicity, our nationality, our covenant identity means nothing if it is not found in Jesus Christ. That's what you need to focus on. The gospel of Jesus. It's good news. I'm here not because I'm, I'm the same. I'm here because of Jesus. 
I can, I, I'm so fine, I'm an Edomite and he's an Israelite. Praise God for a Savior who reconciles the hardest of enemies. Well, the Apostle Paul squares up to these people with that same attitude, that same energy. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Ethnically, he's a Hebrew. His are the people to whom were given the law and the prophets and the promises of God. He says elsewhere that there is a privilege to being a Hebrew. He affirms that 100%. Doesn't hide from that. They have advantages. That doesn't mean that they are right with God. Ethnically, he's a Hebrew. Nationally, he's an Israelite. His are the people whom God brought out of the house of slavery and into the promised land. And He kept them through successive invasions, occupations, and He brought them back after exile. He, he claims that. He's not hiding from it. Nationally, so ethnically a Hebrew, nationally an Israelite, covenantally, He is the offspring of Abraham, however you slice it. He's descended as a Jew from the great patriarch who God took and said, I will make of you a great nation. And in your offspring shall all the nations be blessed. He's also united to the ultimate offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, who is a blessing to those nations. So whichever way you lean, however you slice it, He is offspring of Abraham. Paul elsewhere is very clear that he puts no trust in any of these things except his relationship with God in Christ. But to people who are wide-eyed about false and abusive teachers, Paul says, what makes them better than me? They show up and tell you they're something. I'm exactly the same. I'm those things as well. Why do you listen to them and not to me? He does this to show it's not a great argument, but he can still win it. I mean, I might try it myself sometime. Not with the... Uh, a Hebrew, Israelite, Abraham thing. Are they Christians? So am I. Are they Protestant, Reformational, Evangelical, Baptist, what have you? So am I. Are they from a Christian family? So am I. I know who I am. I, I'm the son of Robert Barry King who has been in pastoral ministry for approaching 40 years, starting in his home state of Arkansas, and continuing ministry for the past almost 20 years in this country, alongside training church planters and pastors on every continent of the globe except Antarctica. He is the son of the late R.B. King, who was a faithful pastor for over 50 years. He was son of Eileen Joel King, a faithful member and servant in the Salem Baptist Church of Box Elder, Texas, where my grandfather was faithfully parented, pastored, and ultimately ordained to gospel ministry. Eileen Joel was son of Seneca Jones King, also of Box Elder, Texas, whose tombstone carries the testimony, Christ is my hope. I can go back a century and a half and tell you about my Christian family if, if that's what you're basing your claims of you know, anything on. 
The promises of God, though, are to those who believe in Jesus, not those who are born to those who believe in Jesus. If someone boasts, though, in some kind of Christian heritage to lead you astray, and if you feel unsettled because you might be a first-generation Christian, as I know quite a few are at some degree, or if you have some ideas and views that you think your claims to Christian heritage or Christian family give you the right to enforce, just remember that you have a pastor who can make the same and perhaps a stronger claim. I don't say things like that often. But I'm ready to, if someone wants to make a big argument out of who they are. The truth is, this doesn't count for anything. Who I am does not matter in this. And Paul knows it doesn't matter. But he's communicating to people who think it does. So he's saying, I can win that argument too if you want to have it. What, he, what is important and what really does matter... Paul doesn't only know who he is. Paul knows whose he is. Are they servants of Christ? He asks. I am a better one. Now that, that seems very like, would a servant of Christ say that? Well, this one could. He had the evidence to show for it he, he knows how he's communicating isn't really appropriate, but that's what's making the message. He says, he says I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one. I can't believe I'm saying this. Feels gross. Go and take a shower afterwards. Just not very nice. Far greater labors. Far more imprisonments. Countless beatings. Often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lasses less one. That is, imagine you're strung up, your arms are tied like this, your tender sides are exposed, this flesh very sensitive, and you're whipped 39 times. Some didn't survive. 39 times. All sides. How many times did he endure that? Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Why did they do that? That was administered by the synagogue, by the way. It was administered by the synagogue for blasphemy. They did that because he proclaimed that Jesus is Lord. Then he was beaten with rods. This was a Gentile punishment. Three times beaten with rods. It was a Gentile punishment for disturbing the peace. So you can imagine how these two things might sometimes go hand in hand. He's, he's proclaimed Jesus as Lord. The synagogue passes judgment. They whip him to pieces 39 times. He stumbles out into the streets and they've kicked him out and they're all in uproar and they're all shouting. And the Gentile soldiers are walking by. What's this? What have we here? Oh, this man was disturbing the peace. They take him. Off they go. He's a fortunate man to be alive. He mentions three times he's shipwrecked. You know, he did a lot of travel. One time he was adrift at sea. We read of one of these in Acts, but it wasn't one of the ones he's talking about. That was after he wrote 2 Corinthians. So he, he had more ahead of him. Imagine that when you're writing about your sufferings and you're writing about your sufferings knowing... There's more 
there's more around the corner. I'm going to be enduring another one of these eventually. All of this list that we read earlier, danger everywhere he looks from everyone, nowhere is safe, no one is safe, and he continues to endure it. He's weak, and he's made weak by others' weakness. When they're weak, it makes him weak. He's down about it. They fall, they're made to stumble. He's indignant, outraged that people are made to fall. To this point, Paul has compared himself with the super apostles of Corinth. Now he contrasts himself. They emphasize wisdom and power. Their message was one that centered their self-identity and with it spiritual standing before God and even social standing before the church. They prized human wisdom and power seen in a certain kind of speaking and writing and displaying a cultural standard of physical strength. Paul, however, proceeds to boast in his weakness. He proceeds to boast in his suffering, his poverty, the things that that he has been through. They're boasting that they've not been through stuff. Paul is boasting that he has been through stuff. The very things that they scoff at, the very things that they mock, he energetically claims for himself. The forces of humanity, of weaponized religion and politics, of nature and of body have all come against him from without. But he feels very keenly something else within his anxiety for the churches. He's been through stuff. And there's someone out there who's saying that he's rubbish, he's nothing, don't pay him any mind. Because look, if he was God's servant, he wouldn't have suffered in this way. Like I was telling you about some of the churches around here that will and on TV and stuff that will say, you're not God's servant. You don't have enough faith because you're sick or because you're poor or because you have problems in your life. The Apostle Paul says, I have problems in my life and that demonstrates I'm His servant. Why does he put up with all of this? Because he's a servant of Christ. He doesn't just call it a day because he belongs to Jesus. He knows not only who he is, he knows whose he is. I've had occasion many times over the years to take refuge in this truth myself. Across the theological spectrum, there are self-absorbed, proud, haughty, arrogant, narcissistic, spiritually abusive, emotionally manipulative, financially exploitative, and physically aggressive people who draw great followings and much financial resource. There are people who get away with saying and doing absolute folly because of their platforms, personalities, paychecks, and to varying degrees, power. Big churches with big ministries with big budgets and bad attitudes that would scoff at us for our weakness and poverty. Friends, there are people who have advised that churches larger than us pack it in and close. They devour the weak. They use such things as weakness and poverty to discredit or to diminish us and the remarkable things that God has done and is doing through small churches. Yes, even this church. 
Are they servants of Christ? I'll say something about someone and I'll, someone will say, oh, they're a servant of Christ. Often in an effort to prove something against me, if I were playing Paul's game here, I would respond, well, so am I. I can honestly say about some of the charlatans that have been put up against me, even as a pastor, I am a better one. Because a pastor is a shepherd. And a shepherd loves the sheep lays down his life for the sheep, feeds the sheep, cares the sheep, and will put up with anything to love the sheep, while other people, there's a line. There's a limit. Just start by taking away the paycheck and see where they go. The last years of my childhood, the whole of my adolescence, and the entirety of my adult life have been in the active service of Jesus Christ. My family impoverished themselves to move here. Why? Specifically to serve Christ. We remained impoverished to stay. When we had a chance to leave, my brother and I pled with our parents not to. Why? Because God called us. And He had communicated very clearly His call to us, but He had not communicated very clearly at all that we were no longer called. Why? Why did I cry when they said, six months after moving here, it's time to go back? Not because of ease. Not because of the things that I enjoyed here. They actually knew what things I was interested in and what things I liked and presented those things to myself and my brother in an effort to persuade us. You'll get to go to your dad's high school. You'll get to play American football. You'll get to... um, Be close to your grandparents again and other friends that you have there. And we wept because of the souls of the people around us. What about them? Who will tell them about Jesus? Until you as a 10-year-old or 11-year-old have changed your parents' mind about moving. I would really urge you to reconsider your disposition about certain things. We stayed to serve. As a result, and I'm not exaggerating, I have endured friendlessness, rejection, poverty, bereavement, and other losses with no normal means of closure. Grief has been experienced in isolation. Emotional and verbal abuse, physical assault, sleepless nights, my present record is a 40-hour day, bouts of ill health due to hard work, stress, or exposure to harsh weather going about ministry. A dear brother asked if I ever thought serving Christ might result in me laying down my life. I responded, I already have and will continue to do so. 
Because laying down my life is not about whether I am prepared to die for Christ, but whether I am prepared to live for Him. Truly for Him as His servant. I hope that my ministry and its fruit are a compelling witness. And I ask God's mercy for the ways in which they are not. But the particular of my service is not important. Who I serve and who every week I am rallying you to serve is. Paul is prepared to relate some of the experience he has faced, but he does so to subvert those boasting in all of their successes. He boasts in what makes him weak so that all the glory goes to God. It is not that he is focused on the mission, locked in, some spiritual special forces elite ops character with tunnel vision. Rather, he is focused on the master. He is locked in on what Jesus has done. He is locked in that Jesus is the Savior for sinners. And he is good news to all who believe in him. And he wants everyone to know it. Some of you will remember in the earliest days of my pastorate, I led a prayer meeting series for over a year on a particular theme. Small church. Does anyone remember the second part? Big God. That is correct. Small church, big God. And I stand as a small pastor in the scheme of pastors around the world, assured not by who I am or what I have done. Although if you insist on talking about yourself or something else along those lines, I can have the conversation. Rather, my assurance is in Jesus. Paul's was, and I want yours to be. Let's stop communicating at a foolish level. And let's reach for higher things. Let's take hold of assurance in Jesus Christ and His power to save. Let's let our conversation be Christ-like according to His meekness and gentleness. And let, let us embrace the sacrifice of Jesus for all of life. Amen.